I don't see how you could keep any of the existing leaders of the Capitol Police. This to me is one of the most spectacular policing failures we have ever seen in American law enforcement. And that is a leadership problem, not a tactics problem. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 8th, 2021. The storming of the Capitol on Wednesday was a catastrophic failure of protective law enforcement as rioters overran Capitol Police barricades and gained access to a building that has a lot of police who were supposed to be protecting it. How did it happen? Who screwed up? And what can be done about it? We're not talking about Donald Trump today, we're talking about the people who were supposed to protect the Capitol and how they failed to do it. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio is Fred Burton, the executive director of the Center for Protective Intelligence at Ontic and a former protective officer himself, Garrett Graff, a journalist who covers federal law enforcement and wrote a book about continuity in government and Lawfare's executive editor, Susan Hennessy. We covered a lot of ground. How bad was the failure on the part of the Capitol Police? Who's responsible for it? What can be done now to bring the perpetrators to justice? And how should we think about changing security protocols on Capitol Hill going forward? It's the Lawfare podcast, January 8th. Who let the barbarians through the gates? So, Fred, I want to start with you. Uh, the day before this happened, I was on my daily live show, and all the people on it agreed that the Capitol Police were well-staffed. They're one of the highest per capita law enforcement presences in the world. You know, they know how to keep people out of the Capitol, and that any effort to storm the Capitol was, you know, not going to fly. I was very surprised to be completely and spectacularly wrong. So I want to start with the magnitude of the screw up on the part of the Capitol Police. Was this simply an overwhelming presence of, of rioters or was there a screw up on the part of the law enforcement presence? Well, Ben, I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, I look at it this way. There's there's three failure points. So one being a protective intelligence failure. Uh, why didn't someone know uh, of the possibility of this to occur from a physical security perspective? Point two, uh, you certainly had a lack of contingency plans in place. And then point three, there was no quick reaction force on standby. Look, I've worked and managed protective intelligence for United Nations General Assemblies, Middle East Peace Conferences, and the list goes on and on. Uh, one thing that you always have at hand is liaison with uh, your law enforcement partners. In this case, uh, it would be the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, the U.S. Park Police, which has a recognized one of the finest crowd control units uh, in the nation. Uh, you have the U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division. You have the Federal Protective Service. You have probably more uniform resources to reach out than any other city in America. So 
I'm somewhat uh, dumbstruck as to what took so long to muster the forces to get there. And then to your point, you can clearly see that the U.S. Capitol Police officers that were inside uh, the Capitol were not prepared. None of them had riot gear or helmets, and uh, they were just overwhelmed. And, you know, coming from the State Department and being involved in accountability review boards, mob violence is one of the tremendous challenges for any physical security program. Uh, And there's a long history of uh, just tragedy in uh, that tactic for the State Department going back to Islamabad in 79, Tehran in 79, and certainly most recently in Benghazi. So one of the other things that just bewildered me about what happened yesterday is this point that you made that that there was no force once the Capitol Police were overwhelmed, there was no force that was ready just to move in and resecure the premises. That suggests to me that there was no comprehensive plan for the physical security of the plant, you know, in preparation for this. Is that a fair assumption or could it have been that there was one and it it got muddled somehow? I think that's a very fair assessment. Uh, I don't think anyone expected the mob to leave the ellipse and start heading for the Capitol. Having said that, having worked these demonstrations tactically, you do have D.C. police, U.S. Park police that are monitoring these crowds constantly when you have these large-scale demos, and they would have radioed ahead as to the movement of the individuals towards the U.S. Capitol. So uh, I am befuddled. I, I just don't think they had a standing reserve of officers in anticipation of violence and then I still am somewhat um, surprised at the lack of rapid response from primarily the D.C. police and the United States Park Police. One other thing before we go to the others, one of the other things that surprised people, including me, was that at the end of the day, all of these folks were just kind of allowed to walk away. There were very few arrests. And I was been trying to figure out whether the best explanation for that is because there was a tactical decision that, you know, all their faces are on multiple cameras. They're not going to have a lot of trouble identifying people in retrospect. The most urgent thing is to get them out of the building without people getting hurt and uh, and to allow Congress to resume its constitutional functions. But there's another explanation, which is things were so chaotic that people were just able to walk away. Uh, how do you understand the denouement of the, of, of the, the day's uh, unpleasantness? I would venture to guess, and again, that speculation, that uh, the U.S. Capitol Police uh, commander or chief decided that uh, at the end of the day, we have enough video surveillance to be able to identify the primary individuals responsible for this that we can follow up and arrest them at another time. And uh, they probably wanted to reconstitute their their forces just for perimeter protection in anticipation of Congress coming back in session. Therefore, uh, from a protective security perspective, that would probably have been my decision on site too if I was in charge of this operation, knowing that you can ask the DC police and the FBI 
to help you prosecute these individuals at, uh, in the future. All right. So, Garrett, we were talking in our editorial meeting this morning, and Susan made the point that when she was in government, they used to have drills about, you know, what you do when you have to evacuate and making sure all of Nancy Pelosi's letters are locked in the desk, not on the surface of the desk. You have studied continuity in government. And this did not look to me like the kind of orderly protocol for the evacuation of the Capitol being invaded by an angry mob that I would have expected to see. So what do we know about congressional contingency plans for things like angry mobs storming the Capitol? Yeah. It's a really good and interesting question, Ben, because there were a couple of different things that you saw play out yesterday that I think make some interest in terms of the continuity plan. So first, there is the simple question of the executive protection that unfolded in those moments. Um, you know, one of the things that makes yesterday unique is that you had Vice President Pence there in his role at the joint session of Congress as the president of the Senate. And so you had some of the nation's top constitutional leaders, two of the three top people in the line of presidential succession right there in the chamber. And that part of the day in some ways seemed to unfold smoothly. You know, you saw the vice president evacuated quickly, the speaker of the house evacuated quickly. Presumably, the president pro tem of the Senate, also in the presidential line of succession, was evacuated quickly. Um, and, and certainly, Fred knows you know how those plans are supposed to unfold. But one of the most important things that they, in any sort of dignitary evacuation like that, is you want to get off the X. You know, you want to get out of the attack zone and into a safe location. And by all accounts, that seems to have worked yesterday. One of the things that really does stand out is. Uh, and Fred was touching on this, is how quickly the different levels of defense of the Capitol collapsed. The Capitol Police are uh, one of the largest police departments in the entire country. You know, Depending on how you count it, they are one of the 10 or 12 largest municipal-style police departments in the country, about 2,000 sworn officers. We spend about $1,250,000 per day on the Capitol Police. And, and just to be clear about that, I mean, so by contrast, there are only 3,800 metropolitan police officers who cover the rest of the District of Columbia, uh, which is a 68 square mile zone. The Capitol Police cover a footprint that's less than one square mile, I think. Exactly. And this is a department that, you know, was overwhelmed in minutes yesterday. And, uh, you know, by the time you get to the point of officers on the floor of the house, on the in the well of the house, barricading the doors with furniture and pulling out their handguns, you know, you have all but lost control of the Capitol in all meaningful uh, purposes. At the same time, 
no members of Congress uh, that, as far as we know, were seriously injured. And that, in some ways, is the most important measurement for the success of the day. But at the same time, it is incredible how quickly what is one supposed to be one of the nation's premier law enforcement agencies collapsed and uh, you know surrendered basically the one thing that they are supposed to hold above all others which is you know securing and protecting the capitol building itself and and i think fred is absolutely right that what you saw was that there was none of the planning that was necessary before the the mob began to move on the Capitol, and that by the time the protesters, the insurrectionists, the pro-Trump mob began marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, the die was already cast. The Capitol Police had already, uh, you know, set themselves up for failure. From an evacuation standpoint, you're also absolutely right, Ben, that this does not seem to have been anywhere close to the type of uh, protocols or experiences that the Capitol has prepared for. And in some ways, you could say this represents a failure of imagination. And at the same time, it doesn't seem that that is a fair characterization because, you know, as you mentioned, we were all talking about this in the days leading up to it. You know, this, this protest has been... Uh, Well-documented, it was not a tactical failure of the capital security uh, system where a couple of wily protesters slipped in a side door that happened to be accidentally unlocked. You know, you you had protesters march en masse right up the steps of the Capitol and into the building in a way that, you know, for those of us who have followed the surge of security spending, the tens of billions of dollars that have been invested in turning D.C. into a, you know, fortress uh, post 9-11, you know, none of us expected, I think, that the Capitol Police and the security of the Capitol would fail as catastrophically and quickly as it actually did. Yeah, so just, it was so not surprising that this happened. The reason I had occasion to be saying the Capitol Police wouldn't let people storm the Capitol uh, was, you know, the night before it happened, was that the protesters were so open about what they were going to do. I mean, storm, storm the Capitol, stop, stop the steal was like almost a slogan. All right. So, Susan, you described this morning the a sort of imaginary protocol, a kind of a proto-protocol that was kind of based on your experiences in government, what would you have expected to see if something like this happened? What did you guys, when you were at NSA, drill for in the event of a necessary evacuation? Yeah, so look, um, first, I do think we need to be a little bit fair in acknowledging that classified spaces and procedures for uh, evacuating from classified spaces are are different um, from unclassified spaces. That said, um, certainly Congress has plans, you know, for what to do and how to secure offices, computers, paperwork in the event of an evacuation. It doesn't have to be an assault by an angry mob. They have a fire drill procedure uh, at work here, right? 
These are um, sensitive and important systems, uh, sensitive and important documents. And uh, one of sort of, I think, the the troubling things that we saw uh, sort of coming out of yesterday was protesters being able to take pictures of computers uh, sort of with open emails. Uh, the House parliamentarian, um, uh, you know, the offices being sort of ransacked and paperwork being everywhere. You know, I, I'm, I haven't worked in Congress and I don't know what their specific protocol are. Um, that said, I think there's um, there's a pretty good guess that there are existing protocol and it simply wasn't followed in this case. Um, and so, you know, we, ne- we need to think about how exactly to learn the appropriate lessons and sort of, you know, place the blame in, in appropriate places. Um, you know, I, similar to what Garrett described, you know, I, I think we, what we saw yesterday was fi- simultaneous failure at a lot of different layers. And, and I think we should evaluate these, uh, the, the sort of what we saw yesterday in, in three different categories that um, are, are related, but not exactly the same. So one is, as we discussed, the failure to adequately prepare. Um, the second was uh, once the police were in a position of being overwhelmed, the immediate tactical decisions that they made uh, in that moment. Um, and then three, to what extent were those security protocol uh, adhered to? Um, we certainly saw some evidence of, uh, of protocol operating quite well. Um, so like Garrett described, um, there are certain individuals who uh, there are very specific security plans in place for. Um, you know, the vice president, um, uh, right, the Secret Service got him out of that situation very, very quickly, moved him to a secure, lo- secure location within the Capitol. Nancy Pelosi, uh, the president po- pro tempore, moved very, very quickly. Um, these systems operate because the people in charge of uh, those designated individual security are only focused on those people, right? That's their job. Uh, that's their area of responsibility in an emergency. And so they're able to sort of uh, execute that quite well. So there was a success there. And then we kind of saw really, you know, chaos. Um, and, you know, uh, Garrett does, I, I think, is right. At the end of the day, um, no members of Congress staff or members of the press were hurt. Part of that is, uh, you know, I, I think um, because of the commendable bravery, um, you know, of, of Capitol Police and others. Um, part of it is just pure dumb luck. It would not have taken uh, very much for us to be having a dramatically different, far more disturbing conversation today. Um, and so I think as we move forward, yes, part of this is about identifying, you know, where to lay the blame, but it's also about, all right, what lessons are we going to learn from this and sort of take away from this moving forward? And in that, I would also caution these videos that are circulating online, particularly of what the police did or, or do in the moments after they're overwhelmed, um, you know, th- those can be misleading. And so it's going to take some time for us to fully understand uh, precisely what happened and why. All right. I want to talk about retrospective criminal charges here. Uh, huge number of people whose faces are not subtle filmed doing things that are frankly criminal, as is, by the way, merely being on those grounds in the circumstances of a riot. In addition, a whole lot of the people who are involved are, you know, when they're not tweeting that this was really done by Antifa agent provocateurs, are busy tweeting or parlouring their pictures of their own roles in it and boasting about it and posting videos. 
So you have a lot of opportunities as law enforcement in retrospect to prosecute. Fred, what do you think should be the law enforcement objective here? There are somewhere around 40,000 people involved. You could presumably identify a lot of them. Is the goal to prosecute the ringleaders? Is it to prosecute as many people as possible? What's the the posture for federal law enforcement in retrospect that has the highest deterrent value for future such incidents? Well, that's a very good question, Ben. Uh, you know, first, you've got a very complex crime scene where technology is certainly going to be a tremendous assistance to you. But let's not forget that we also had a serious uh, officer-involved shooting involving the death of an individual. So that's first and foremost uh, going to be uh, a priority, uh, which I assume that the Metropolitan Police Homicide Division would take the lead on. Secondly, uh, you're going to have, much like what I saw, which I, I think was wonderful to see, uh, the FBI Washington Metropolitan Field Office push out the request for photographs and digital technology and information looking for tips involving individuals. And in today's digital world, it, it certainly won't take uh, the FBI a lot of time to identify the primary suspects and ringleaders that were directly involved in criminal activity, such as destruction of U.S. government property and so forth. So, you know, from a tiered perspective, uh, Ben, I anticipate that's going to happen. You know, the Bureau is going to go after the ringleaders first and then just work their way down that tier. Ben, one of the things I think that stands out to me in looking at your question is I think you actually have two very different questions wrapped up in that. One is the question of what what should be the law enforcement posture in terms of charges against these protesters or the, this mob. The second half of your question, though, about what's going to have the most deterrent effect, I'm not sure that those that's actually the same question. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is we've already seen the Justice Department today, Thursday, come out strong, um, acting Attorney General uh, Jeffrey Rosen with a statement saying that the DOJ is going to go after whoever they can. Chris Ray, FBI director, similar type statement. But I wonder, actually, if there's much of a deterrent effect that could be exercised at this point, or whether what we actually saw yesterday was that the Capitol Police made clear that there isn't much of a deterrent effect. Because let's remember, yesterday's attack on the Capitol didn't exist in a vacuum. There were similar attacks and, and stormings of state capitals across the country in, in states like Kansas and elsewhere that also went unresponded to and sort of unresisted by local law enforcement. So I really worry that regardless of what charges the FBI or other federal law enforcement bring against some of these ringleaders down the road, I worry that there is a whole group of proud boy adjacent pro-Trump 
uh, activists, militias, terrorists, insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, who watched yesterday unfold in Washington and other state capitals and said, there is nothing that they can do to stop us. And the president of the United States wants us to keep doing this. Yeah, although, Garrett, my instinct on how I, I think you're right, although I would respond by saying I think prosecuting, fully investigating and prosecuting the, the people who participated uh, in these events, uh, certainly at the Capitol and, and, uh, and, and in state capitals around the country uh, under the relevant state and federal laws, um, is a necessary but not sufficient condition to deterrence. Um, so, yes, there's a much broader question of what message was received. Are we likely to see um, sort of similar? efforts to do this in the future. Um, that said, look, there weren't thousands and thousands of people uh, who participated in this. There wasn't so large of a number that it is beyond the investigative capacity of the United States to uh, fully identify and hold you know, pretty much everybody to account. It, it takes time. It takes resources. But I actually do think this is a moment in which it's really important for uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI to say, we are committed to expending those resources. We are committed to putting in the man hours, doing the work to identify every individual who was involved, to examining all of the evidence of what activity they participated in, and to prosecuting them to the fullest extent of what the law and available evidence uh, will allow us to do. That's going to result in, you know, sort of necessary distinctions between people. Obviously, if you want to, um, you know, genuinely prosecute people for things like seditious conspiracy, you know, you're, you're going to need to to prove uh, mens rea, right? You know, the the um, the the requirements of those uh, of those charging decisions are, are higher, and um, uh, that's necessarily going to limit it to the the organizers, the people who might have communicated, might have posted public messages in which they very very clearly made this uh, made these statements and made their intentions clear, you know. But I think prosecuting people for for trespass, you know, for uh, for misdemeanor mail theft, right? All of these little things, um, you know, that that is a value judgment and saying, um, look, we care enough about this that we are not going to to turn a blind eye or, or look the other way. I, I think of that as sort of a, a minimal deterrence statement. And then the question is, that's unlikely to be enough. So, so what do we do on top of that to ensure, um, you know, that this doesn't become the first of many, many similar incidents? All right. But it seems to me that there's one very high law enforcement value if you're talking about deterrence that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's speed. If you're concerned, as I was and Fred, as you and I spoke about before, that people were maybe for legitimate tactical reasons allowed to walk away, and you're also concerned about deterrence, it follows that you want people arrested pretty quickly. And so with the caveat that, you know, Susan's point, I'm, I, I certainly agree with that you want, you know, you really want to hold everybody accountable to the extent that you can. Uh, you also want to do it fast. Over what time frame do you guys think we're going to see people getting knocks on their door from the Bureau? Fred, why don't you get us started? Sure. I think you'll see things happen within the next 72 hours uh, at, at the uh, uh, the long end, probably uh, seven days from now. I think it's going to depend upon how many have already scattered and gone back to different cities and locations and 
you know, the, the FBI does a very good job at uh, prioritizing those kinds of, of leads and investigations and creating a, you know, a major case to go after. But I, I do think that, you know, from that standpoint, there is going to take a little bit of time to go through the surveillance footage and uh, to put faces to people and to send those leads out. So you've just got the bureaucracy of a major investigation, which, you know, having been linked in, in, and been involved in like the World Trade Center case in Oklahoma City and so forth. I mean, these kinds of leads do take time, but uh, we're much better today in our post 9-11 world with the ability to do that using technology as a solution to help you. Garrett, what do you think? When when are we going to start seeing arrests? Uh, the Justice Department is saying as early as today. And one of the things I have been struck by is the number of, of U.S. attorneys who have put out statements across the country saying, you know, we commit to prosecuting to the full extent of the law anyone from our territory and jurisdiction who traveled to Washington to carry out these acts. Um, you know, we've seen U.S. attorneys in places like the Western District of Pennsylvania, in places like Minnesota, put out those statements today. And I do think this is going to turn into very quickly a full whole of government, you know, whole of the Justice Department effort. And I think, by the way, one of the reasons that we should hope that it can move as quickly as possible is, you know, I think that this becomes a instant hot potato and delicate situation for the Biden administration and the Biden Justice Department when they take over on January 20th. As we're talking right now, Joe Biden is rolling out his Justice Department nominees, people that many of us on this podcast know quite well, uh, Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, Vanita Gupta. And this is, uh, I think, going to be a difficult political question for the Biden team in the context of Biden has made pretty clear he doesn't want to spend a lot of time looking back at the excesses and abuses and, and incidents of the Trump administration, and, and he wants to move forward as best he can. So, Susan, let's talk about that. We're going to have, given particularly the uh, sudden Democratic control of the Senate, we're likely to have quite quick confirmation hearings for both Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco. And that means that while there will there may be some period in which there's an acting attorney general, uh, it will not be a long period. So now a new attorney general comes in, a new deputy attorney general comes in amidst what, as Fred rightly describes, you have a giant investigation that's going to have literally thousands of subjects around the country, what happens when the new administration takes office with respect to this? Yeah, so I, I think that's a heavily fact-dependent uh, sort of question. And I'm hopeful that you, while you're right, this is a, a complicated and, and sprawling investigation, part of it won't be especially difficult, right? So sort of the task of immediately identifying uh, at least some individuals, um, right? People who under their own identities, um, you know, posted videos of themselves actually committing crimes. Um, that's what the FBI likes to call a clue. So, you know, I, I, I do think 
think that there's going to be the ability to move with relative speed. Unlike some of the other categories of investigation, I don't think that this series of prosecutions are likely to be very highly politically sensitive in a way that the new attorney general and deputy attorney general are going to want to come in and be very, very cautious in the handling. Um, I, I think there will be broad public support for prosecuting this stuff. And, you know, look, I um, I, I think these are, um, you know, both uh, Merrick Garland and, and Lisa Monaco are really extraordinary picks, um, really, really competent, uh, thoughtful people. Um, and they're not people who are inclined to stretch the law, right? And, and to really attempt to uh, apply statutes that are not appropriately suited to the purposes, right? So um, our colleagues on Lawfare today um, published sort of a comprehensive overview of every kind of federal statute that possibly could be imagined. And they identified things that are, you know, plainly uh, occurred, right? So trespass to federal property. Um, You know, they also identified some sort of outliers, um, right? Things like using the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. um, There's there's sort of uh, various levels at which you might attempt to sort of say, you know, look, we're going to we're going to go after these sort of more aggressive charges. And I think we're going to see a new team come in and want to be thoughtful and even-handed and fair. One thing that could end up becoming complicated is if this does end up becoming a a, a sort of a a difficult legal question. Um, So one thing we've seen already uh, sort of swirling on social media is, I I think, the the somewhat absurd claim um, that somehow a a large group of these protesters or uh, or insurgents, or I don't know, violent mob, whatever we've settled on, believed that the Capitol was a public building and therefore they were entitled to be inside. Um, So Cases like that in which there are collective uh, defense claims or difficult questions of law, again, I don't identify any of them right now, but it's plausible. You know, that would be an area in which we might imagine sort of coordination occurring through main justice. But but I would sort of uh, um, imagine that this is going to be handled pretty conventionally. The Bureau is going to investigate. It's going to task things out to the field offices. Um, The relevant U.S. attorneys in the various jurisdictions are going to use statutes, right? So, um, you know, there, there are lots of statutes sort of available involving um, interstate commerce and uh, and traveling from various jurisdictions to other places in order to commit federal crimes. That's one thing that uh, these various U.S. attorneys sort of made a point of saying, right? Any individuals who traveled from the, you know, Southern District of Ohio to Washington, D.C., um, you know, we will prosecute. That's the U.S. attorneys describing their own jurisdiction. Um, and, and, and probably a lot of work being done by the yet-to-be-appointed U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Um, so I, I actually would anticipate that this is going to be a, a pretty conventional thing and we'll, we'll get a lot of press and, and sort of eyeballs in, in the very early days. And then um, after kind of hopefully somewhat normalcy has uh, has resumed in Washington, D.C., um, and, and maybe the media and the public is less focused on what's happening, the Bureau and the Department of Justice are going to do the work they always do, which is prosecuting people, continuing to investigate until they're done, um, you know, even even if it takes months or years to do so. So I think there is one huge variable that could throw a uh, big wrench into that uh, reassuring plan, and that's the fact that Donald Trump still controls the pardon power for the next 13 days uh, or 12 days by the time people listen to this. Garrett, how likely do you think it is that in Trump's final couple weeks, 
the most imaginatively spiteful use of the pardon he could come up with, other than perhaps pardoning himself and his children and Rudy Giuliani, is a kind of blanket amnesty to all the people who the Justice Department would want to prosecute and the FBI would want to arrest. I think that that is uh, not necessarily a uh, surefire thing, but I would certainly put it into the more likely than not category that we're going to see in the next 13 days. And in fact, I think we might even see it much more quickly than that, because I think one of the challenges that we are seeing right now is rising calls for the invocation of the 25th Amendment uh, by Mike Pence or the impeachment of the president, both of which I think are uh, highly unlikely uh, scenarios. But uh, Donald Trump might very quickly feel that he has a real ticking clock uh, against his presidency and might be uh, tempted to act. And remember, we have seen blanket amnesties like that before. Jimmy Carter granted blanket amnesty to Vietnam War draft dodgers as president to try to reset that political debate and allow people who had been caught up in that war for all variety of reasons to be able to re-enter society in an open way. Look, but not to sort of quibble with uh, the premise of your question, Ben, but I I guess I'm not really clear. Trump issuing those kinds of blanket pardons is certainly plausible. It certainly would be a grotesque abuse of power, but they almost certainly would be valid pardons. And to the extent that there were questions at the margins, um, it seems overwhelmingly unlikely that a new attorney general or deputy attorney general would be inclined to want to prosecute anyway and, uh, and, and attempt to sort of test those legal questions. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that uh, Trump issuing a blanket pardon would would complicate things, right? It would be a hideous abuse of office. But uh, what choice would the FBI or the Justice Department have but to say, we can't continue to investigate or prosecute people who, who are covered by this pardon? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think they would have no choice but to say exactly that. They would say exactly that. And the result would be uh, that you had an attack on the Capitol for which nobody could be prosecuted. And I understand as we've been talking, the first uh, case has now been announced, or at least it has shown up on the docket uh, of the court here in D.C. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I think that the first set of sort of discrete uh, federal charges uh, have been filed against at least two individuals. um, uh, And these appear to be pretty traditional sort of assault uh, charges for, uh, you know, trespass and, and assaulting Capitol Police officers. All right. So I want to finish with Fred, with the subject of what kind of after action study we need here. It seems to me there's a significant law enforcement capability that we thought was adequate for certain purposes that collapsed, as you and Garrett described, uh, much more dramatically and much more completely and much more quickly than anyone would have expected. The 
protective function vis-a-vis members of Congress and staff was reasonably well done. But it seems to me if you were one thing you would want if you were a new administration or if you were a new majority leader of the Senate or maybe not so new Speaker of the House is uh, some answers about what security is being provided and how it measures up with expectations. And so I'm curious if you were, if Nancy Pelosi called you today and said, hey, what do we need in the way of a, of a study of this? What would you tell her? I would advise uh, her that uh, she needs to appoint an independent board, much like the State Department model with the Accountability Review Board, uh, to study the security failures uh, and to my colleague Susan and Garrett's points throughout this, you know, having served as a protection agent as well, uh, there were certain things that did work. So look at the things that worked and what didn't work. Uh, study the physical security uh, aspects and the challenges for trying to protect a public building, looking at the intelligence failures as to potentially who might have had information indicating this was in the works and how long out this this was planned, if, if at all. So this is kind of a complex uh, study. I would certainly bring in a, a senior U.S. Capitol Police or former U.S. Capitol Police uh, director or chief to also be a, a part of that board, similar to what the State Department does. Uh, but bring in outside experts to draw some reasonable conclusions that are subject matter experts in physical security, protective intelligence, after action studies, uh, physical security response, and uh, look at this uh, as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, we all know that there's also going to be public hearings surrounding this at some point in time, but I think it's important for these physical security failures to be looked at very, very rapidly and steps be put into place to try to fix this as soon as possible. Uh, I, I would add very quickly there, I don't see how you could, uh, how anyone who is in a leadership role in congressional security could conceivably keep their job after yesterday. The We've already seen the House Sergeant-at-Arms offer a resignation today. Chuck Schumer has said that he will fire the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms uh, when he takes control um, as Senate Majority Leader, if that person hasn't uh, resigned by then, I don't see how you could keep any of the existing leaders of the Capitol Police after watching yesterday. Because to me, and Fred may disagree, but I, I see this entirely as a leadership and strategic failure of the Capitol Police. And the fact that they were not prepared, uh, is not the fault of the officers in patrol uniforms standing at low metal pedestrian barriers without long guns and without a quick reaction force. This is the fault of a uh, leadership structure and a command structure that saw their department basically routed, you know, in, in the way that you would sort of expect you know, in infantry to collapse in the 19th century during an infantry charge. You know, this this to me is one of the most spectacular policing failures 
we have ever seen in American law enforcement. And that is a leadership problem, not a tactics problem. Look, I also think, though, there's, um, you know, we shouldn't understate the challenge ahead in terms of what lessons to learn and how to respond to this. Obviously, mobs, large mobs of people physically overrunning the Capitol was not in uh, the sort of relevant actors' threat models. Um, and that was a mistake and a serious error. And they they are fortunate that they did not pay a higher price, although we, we certainly did pay a high price, um, even in, in this circumstance. Um, the U.S. Capitol is not the Pentagon. Um, it's not, uh, you know, a heavily fortified place. It is an open location that lots and lots of people have to uh, go in and out of every day, at least whenever there's not a raging pandemic. Um, it's also a symbolically important location for large crowds of people to be able to gather in order to protest. Um, and so there's going to be tremendous pressure to not respond to this by essentially erecting a much larger perimeter that sort of forces people back and and, uh, and prevents them from, uh, from interacting with the building, the way we've seen the Secret Service essentially uh, kind of fortify, you know, several blocks around the White House at this point, um, instead of sort of the traditional, uh, much closer perimeter that only gets moved out in in sort of um, uh, very limited uh, uh, periods of, of large concern. The Trump administration has sort of made that a, a permanent feature. You know, uh, one, it would be physically harder to do that with the Capitol just by virtue of its um, geography and location, um, and, and and two, it would be a shame. <laughs> Um, right. This is this is the the symbolic center and seat of our government, and so absolutely there needs to be uh, you know sort of autopsies on what went wrong here. Lots of things need to to change moving forward. Um, but I think there also is a really serious risk of um, of potential overreaction or of implementing policies that you know don't take a uh, sort of a risk analysis um, or or uh, weigh the pros and cons and. Um, and, and think a lot about sort of um, uh, the the importance of facilitating that kind of protest. And um, like, I, I don't envy the person who has to come up with sort of the solution to square this circle. Um, it's it's going to be a really, really difficult challenge. But I, I think we should sort of be clear eyed that um, we can't just call this a failure and say, OK, you know, put up the concrete barricades and let's get lots of, um, you know, people with long guns and, and riot gear in there. Um, you know, I, that, that would be a, a bad outcome if it became sort of a, a permanent security presence, a, a permanent and, and an intrusive security presence in that way. We are going to leave it there. Garrett Graff, Susan Hennessy, Fred Burton, thank you all so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You can get merch at thelawfarestore.com. You can leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. And you should talk about us on social media. Instead of planning an invasion of the Capitol, plan publicity for the Lawfare Podcast. Use your social media for good, not for ill. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.